Hello and welcome to Communicating Climate Change. I'm Joe Cohn with the Oregon Sea Grant Program at Oregon State University. I'm talking today with photographer and journalist Gary Brosh about his new book, Earth Under Fire, How Global Warming is Changing the World, published recently by University of California Press. This is a slight departure from our previous conversations with climate communication researchers, but I thought it might be stimulating to have a change in perspective. So here we have a practitioner of climate communication, a well-respected photojournalist, and a winner of the Ansel Adams Award for Conservation Photography. Welcome, Gary. A book like Earth Under Fire, 270 pages, five detailed chapters by you, additional essays contributed by climate scientists, 100 color photographs and illustrations, is surely years in the making. As a journalist, perhaps you can begin by sharing how, when, and why you got started. Well, I ultimately got started as a, as a nature photographer. Uh, not only my love of nature and my interest in natural history, but because when I finally picked up a camera, and I was actually already um, out of college when I picked up a camera for the first time, there's a lot of magic there. And for quite a while, despite the fact that I have a master's degree in journalism, I focus very strongly just on the imagery. Uh, most of my work has been for uh, environmental issues, natural history science, and so on. And so when along the way I started picking up information about climate change, that it was actually happening, um, noticeable by the scientists and so forth. This was through the 80s and 90s. Finally, in Alaska, in the late 90s, in the space of just a few days, I witnessed uh, a major migration move by 80,000 caribou in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And I had already heard from scientists that they were beginning to see that the seasons were shifting, the seasons on which the caribou are evolved into and what they rely on for the timing of having their calves and everything. And within a couple of days on my way out of Alaska, I flew into Prudhoe Bay, which is a little slice of northern New Jersey industrial land slapped down on the tundra. And everything that I'd been learning about global warming and the effects of fossil fuels and the emissions into the atmosphere suddenly really clicked in real time. That There were these animals that where effects were happening on their landscape that were because of what was changing in the atmosphere, and it was because of too much fossil fuel, which was being extracted really you know, less than 100 miles away. So at that point, I looked around, and I actually did not see very many good photographs about the actual science of climate. And so as an environmental photojournalist, I already had my contacts in the publishing world, and I knew how to talk to scientists, I hoped, so I just started emailing leading scientists whose papers had appeared in the journals, and I proceeded that way. That started in 1999, and most of this project proceeded by f following the actual published peer-reviewed science and advice from those, some of those scientists to try to paint a picture of where in the world climate change was being studied, where, it was, where the effects were seeing, and increasingly now as we go into the into this new century and where more and more people are aware of climate change uh, I'm I'm interested in the bigger picture in terms of what's happening with our civilizations what's happening with our cities and what are the tools that we have to change to change what we're doing so the book became just that it's a digest of the science it's illustrated science basically 22 countries um, all seven continents 
Um, there were about 50 scientists that were prime in advising me and that I reported on, but actually 170 scientists total is the number of people that I contacted in one way or the other to make sure this book is accurate. In the very last paragraph of this big book, you wrote, quote, The goal of this work has been to witness and provide rare documentation of climate changes in the world. Tell us what you meant by witness, just seeing. Well, uh, witnessing starts with seeing. But I think witnessing has the connotation of, of someone who brings back a story, who brings back something that they've seen and tells other people. Um, that's what I've tried to do. So I've gone and seen. I've gone to, I've been underwater with scientists who are studying the coral reefs. I've been at the top of uh, mountains in, in, the, in the Alps, 15,000 feet, uh, also in the Andes. Uh, I've been beyond the Antarctic Circle and beyond the Arctic Circle to see what's happening there. But, of course, I did interview the scientists, and I kept a lot of notes, and I read their papers, and I got advice from other people. So eventually I did have these both personal stories about what I saw and what it was like to be there, and some personalities about, the, about the, who the scientists were. So, yes, I'm bringing back um, stories and, and eyewitness accounts from places where climate change is absolutely being seen right now. In your goal for the book, you also said you wanted to provide rare documentation. And to my eye, at least, you show things that I think are rare and will startle many viewers. I'd like you to describe a couple of them. Tell us what this two-page picture of a large group of people is about and and why you included it. The simplest explanation is that it shows a bunch of uh, people standing along the um, eroded edge of a peninsula of dirt or uh, a road, which is what it actually is, sticking out into water. Um, It's from Bangladesh, and Bangladesh is, of course, uh, in the delta of the Brahmaputra and the Ganges River, the largest delta in the world, 140 million people. It is the largest nation that is right at sea level and, and, of course, threatened by... Uh, everything that's coming across the bay. They they are known for huge floods and huge uh, cyclones already. But I wanted to go there when the weather was relatively normal to get an idea of, so how close do these people live to the edge? Because we've heard the idea of sea level rise coming up um, two to three feet, maybe more, some scientists say now. What does that actually mean? And it might be more difficult to see that in the United States, although you can see it. But what about the people who are not really causing the problem, who have very little income and very little industry, and who are right on the edge? So I went to Bangladesh to try to illustrate that, and I really didn't know exactly how I would do it. But the minute I got there and got on a boat, I realized that, yes, there's really only about a meter from where the water level is to the beginning of the first level of rice paddies and the levels where the, where the villages are. And so this particular picture came about uh, out of mostly the, the curiosity of the Bangladeshis. When I first saw this scene, and it, is, it is a road that's been eroded away, and it used to extend out several more kilometers into the river. The erosion is natural, but if you imagine a lot more depth of water, the erosion is going to happen faster. That's the message here. Um, I had a boat that didn't that looked uh, like a normal country boat. I had uh, leased it from some uh, some contacts, and there was a family on board that was basically supporting me. But the minute I said, "Let's go back and photograph that again," and the boat made a big turn in the river, people noticed, and more and more people came out. They saw me, and before I knew it, there were more and more people streaming down from the village to see what was going out on the river. Eventually, um, it got to be 
uh, 80 to 90 people standing there. And that's an interesting number because it turns out that because of their level of income, only about $400 a year on average. And uh, lack of any really big heavy industry, that most people do not have vehicles, that uh, it takes that many Bangladeshis on average to equal the CO2 output of a single American. Ratio is about 90 to 1. So this picture has additional symbology of these are the kind of people in the world who are not causing the problem, the problem of climate change uh, in terms of the, the heaviest output of CO2 and methane is being caused by a handful of nations, 30 nations out of 190 in the United Nations. And this is one of the nations that has a very, very low output, and yet here are all these people literally on the edge and um, going to be more and more threatened by sea level rise even if there are no more heavy storms. It is a very striking image. And by the way, I should tell listeners that the podcast website provides a link back to your own website where they can view the photos you're talking about now. The second one I'd like your comment on is the very last picture on the back jacket of the book. It raises a number of questions. This is a picture of a mountain scene, and there is a hand sticking out, and the hand is holding a a black-and-white picture. And the story of this is that this is the Andes, um, very near uh, Mount Roscaran, which is the, one of the tallest peaks in the Peruvian Andes, glaciated landscape. And in, 19, in the 1930s, a group of mountaineers were exploring this area, and one of them had cameras, and he took a series of really very famous, mountaineering-wise, they're very famous, and geologically, they're very famous because they've been used as a baseline about what, it, what was it like back there in the 30s when so few pictures were being made of the Andes. So I managed to acquire one of these prints, and I carried it with me to the Andes. We're at about 15,000 feet, and I'm off the trail for sure. I'm up on the slope of a mountain, and I'm basically walking along, holding this black and white picture and looking across at the... It's obviously the right landscape in the same one, but what exactly was the angle? How high was this photographer? Uh, this is part of my, of my early idea, which has been repeated by many people now, uh, that glaciers are very sensitive monitors of the temperature and the changes in rainfall and the changes of the amount of, uh, the, uh, the amount of time during the year when there's no snow falling on them as they're melting back. Though so around the world, it's, scientifically, it's absolutely a significant number. It's something way above 90% of the glaciers of the world, of the 160-some thousand glaciers, major glaciers in the world, that are receding, and some of them are receding at an accelerating pace as we go into this century. And um, the old records of what they once looked like have been used by many people, especially scientists, to, to, to sort of judge wh- where we have been. So this was my attempt at this, and I went to the Andes on another job and managed to tack on this trip up in the uh, Cordillera Blanca and found that I was able to find this position and make a shot. And it turns out the glacier has moved back about, about a kilometer and is almost gone. It used to fill a small little valley, the valley now has two little lakes in it, and there's a tiny little patch of ice hanging on the headwall, and that's all that's left of it. And the significance of, of glaciers in the tropics is much stronger even than glaciers here in the northwest and in the, in the temperate zone. The reason is, is that in many places in the tropics, the glaciers are absolutely the only water supply of many villages, and in terms of even big cities like Lima, uh, in Quito, they get a significant amount of their water 
um, way more than 75% in the dry season from glacier melt. And indeed, all the glaciers that feed their reservoirs are also shrinking at a very rapid pace. And so this is a very serious issue to millions of people around the world. If you count the people in the Himalayas, whose glaciers are much more extensive but also shrinking, who again are dependent on that water, we're talking billions of people who are immediately affected by a shrinkage of glaciers. We haven't seen uh, very much water shortage yet because the glaciers are just starting to get to the point where they will get so small that that will actually happen. But it is happening, and it's a, there's no sign of it decreasing. That's the, an important point, that it's not leveling off in any way. The second thing about these glaciers is that they contain a record of climate that includes how heavy the monsoons were. They include a, a great deal of dust from the center part of the planet. Um, they, they offer a, a different reading on the history of the Earth compared to the glacier cores that most people may have heard of, which came from Antarctica or Greenland. And so this is like a library that is being essentially on fire or being, you know, destroyed. You're listening to Communicating Climate Change and a conversation with photojournalist Gary Brosh. So, Gary, this series of podcasts has been reflecting on how those of us who communicate with the public about climate can improve our effectiveness. My guess is that uh, you may have had a framework which guided the communication choices that you made for your book. I mean, you organized it, you made certain choices, presumably to be more effective in communicating about this topic. Have you thought about that? And would you share what your thoughts might be? In, in the first place, I did have pretty amazing photographs. I, I was not sure when I started this what I was going to see in every location, and I certainly was not sure whether or not I could make pictures that actually said, without much captioning, that this is about climate change. Or about, or about change in general. I, I, that was a really big question. In a way, it's like when, um, you, know, when you uh, read uh, Ansel Adams on photography. You know, he talks about landscape photography, and much of that is just you're just photographing the air. You can't really move and change your aspect very much. You're, you're given this, this particular presentation at a particular moment, and it's up to the photographer to try to use it. Climate change is sort of like that, and it's, it happens over quite a bit of time. The change is subtle, but it adds up, and a lot of it has to do with what's in the air and in the oceans. And so f the first thing I knew from my previous work was that giving people a view of what the scientists looked like or the critter that they were working on or the landscape where the study took place vastly increased both their interest in what was happening and their ability to sort of imagine what the fa as the facts were presented to them, how, how it fit together. First of all, when I went to Antarctica, I was really lucky. I got an assignment early to go to Antarctica, and that gave me a real leg up because Antarctica is a fantastic, incredible, most exciting landscape. And when I was able to take those magnificent pictures of these glaciers on the edge of Antarctica with huge crevasses and extended calving fronts and put that together with the scientific fact that that most of the glaciers on the Antarctic Peninsula, the, the edges of Antarctica, are moving faster and are putting more ice into the, into the water. This becomes a picture that is both exciting, and you get what's happening, first of all, visually, but then you understand from a very short caption that this is a picture of fast-moving glaciers, which have been connected to climate change. And so that's most of what I did. And then I took pictures of the scientists 
um, hopefully on scene, using the tools that they're using, doing what they're doing. And those have probably been the most successful pictures. Uh, I made an incredible trip to Tuvalu, which is a tiny island nation in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, 11,000 people. That is like uh, Bangladesh, is right on the edge. In fact, they're even closer to the water than, than, than Bangladesh is. And they are actually already suffering in terms of salt water from higher sea levels coming up in the roots of their plants and starting to get into their water supplies. So this is a country and a United Nations member and everything that actually absolutely does face the possibility that within this century, maybe even sooner, that they would find that their land is no longer habitable. This is a huge story. Everything that I have in there has, a, has some kind of reference, mostly in good science. There is a certain amount of gray matter in terms of reports from government agencies and so forth in there, but we back everything up and try to make the language readable and accessible, but to try to make clear that from these individual examples in the photographs and in my, my own personal narrative, my personal witness, there is all this absolute science and real observations around the world that are part of the same that, that, that indicate that this same kind of effect is happening many other places. And therefore, we build this picture, which some people say is get still... I tried not to be depressing, but in fact, you get through the first three and a half chapters or so forth, and it's a lot of bad news in terms of all the changes that are happening. We need to change. I try to add a lot more about, well, exactly what would that change look like? What the, who's already doing this change? Uh, what it, how possible is it? And, and what is the basically the short-term the short-term future. And my ending message is, is that we shouldn't, we have control over a bunch, of, a bunch of our energy use and we should be moving very rapidly to making these changes. It will take quite a while to make a complete changeover. We're going to need some new inventions. We're going to need a lot more money moving in that direction. But in fact, we can make these changes because people have already made them. The technology is already there and they absolutely do work. And this is a this is a significant message. What are you learning as you go around speaking about the book and making presentations? What insights do you have about either the specifics of the content that you're presenting or the nature of the kind of reception that you're getting? You're contacting the public in a direct way about climate, and your observations, I'm sure, would be of interest to other communicators. Well, first of all, my reception has been very good everywhere. There, there remains a, uh, what I think is a small number of people, but nevertheless very vocal, who for one reason or another do not believe that climate change is actually happening or that humans are involved in causing it. And I, I, um, I have talked to many of them. They email me because I have an active website. And um, some of them are just intractable. They, there's something in them that makes them not want to believe it, and that's, I guess that's where you have to leave it. But the majority of people, that are, by far the majority, already understand it's an issue, are looking for things that they can do. And uh, many of them, when I have hands raised about who's changed light bulbs and who has a, a high mileage car and so forth, more and more people are raising their hands, and, and the people are actively looking for something to do. The other big thing, just briefly, is that I don't think anybody or very few people understand really all of the depth and the, and the breadth of the change that is going to have to happen. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to change a great deal. But we're still going to need energy coming into our homes and businesses, and it will just be from a different source. But many things are going to have to change in a stepwise, and it needs to be planned by some 
by people who know already how to build infrastructure and how to, how to run a nation. You wrote that essentially we can make the changes needed to address the climate problem, but what is lacking is the will to change. I'd be interested in knowing from you more about where in the world you did see that will put into action. The, the places I saw that most so far uh, are probably places in Europe where they, for some reason or other, in their political system and in their, in their understanding of, um, of, of science, of how science works, they have gotten the idea earlier. They have understood what the science was saying at a much earlier pace. Now, they have the same kind of political holdback. They have the same kind of conflicts between people's lifestyles and, and the kind of products that people have and how much energy they're, that are, that are uh, used to make them that we do. But they have tended to move a bit faster. But at the present time, it's been Europe that's leading. So you see the Netherlands, which has huge issues with rising sea level. They have fought the sea for for uh, many hundreds of years, and they are actively um, adapting. That is, that they are m making their levees higher. But the people in the Netherlands now are realizing that they're not only fighting the ocean rising, but they're also fighting the, the, the possibility of a lot more floodwaters coming down the Rhine. So they're also building internal dikes. But one thing they have done, for example, is they're beginning to move those dikes back to to, re, uh, to allow the wetlands that were, it was all, of course, a big delta there, too, just like Bangladesh, only it was a much more advanced country in terms of economics. They're now allowing more water to flow into the wetlands that were there so that they could soak up more of the moisture and therefore help protect them. So that's one country where you can see them very actively making changes in the way that they run their infrastructure in order to take um, to see to, to take advantage of both what the natural landscape can give them and to be ready for the the disasters that they see that are possibly going to come. What happened in New Orleans was certainly a wake up call, but in New Orleans it was really more about the uh, internal structures, the 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 social protections, and the way that governments work. And what I say in my book is that even though Hurricane Katrina was not the strongest storm, and there were a lot of human failures the possibility that human failures would be involved in any disaster is very large. It's probably inevitable. The idea that there would be more cities at risk and and possibly stronger hurricanes and certainly higher sea level means we're going to have more situations where an entire city with millions of people in it is going to have tremendous problems at a level that we have not seen before. But one of the biggest overtones for me of studying what I what I learned about climate change is that the entire society, the entire civilization is going to be changed, is going to have to react to this. And all of us as family members and as parents and as, and as kids are going to have to realize that everything that we do in life also puts out CO2 and how can we reduce that and get started on that in a daily, on a daily basis. That's where the willpower comes in. This has been a conversation with photojournalist Gary Brosh, one of a series about communicating climate change. I'm Joe Cohn of Oregon Sea Grant, an ocean and coastal research and education program at Oregon State University. This and other climate podcasts and their complete transcripts can be found online at seagrant.oregonstate.edu. That's S-E-A grant, one word, dot Oregon State, as one word, dot edu. Thank you for listening.